Fed can just print more money out of thin air, but the government's always going to be in debt to the Fed. Always. What is going on, everybody? A real quick disclaimer. Uh, if you if this episode made you want to sign up for the Patreon to hear what I get into with Rage Against the Machine, I do not cover Rage Against the Machine. I say that in the intro, but I cover uh, Marilyn Manson, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, System of a Down, and Nirvana, of course. I say uh, Rage, but I, I'm leaving them into the uh, next episode. They will start the part two uh, of this new little series that I want to do. You'll find out all about it in the actual intro for the show. But I'd hate for somebody to sign up for Patreon because they wanted to hear about Rage, and I uh, just cocked easy there. So there you go. There's the disclaimer. Now you can't hate me for it. But enjoy this music and CIA Tide episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Dangerous World Podcast. So thankful that you're here listening today. Uh, talking about something kind of fun here. Um, you know, I've been doing my little series on Russian cosmism and this whole topic set here will be another series where I'm kind of breaking it up. I don't like to do, you know, multiple part series back to back to back to back because I feel like it kind of gets the, uh, topic a little tired. People want a variation of things. And, um, when you're talking about music, and big musical acts and bands and, you know, these superstars in the music world and the CIA's connections within there, it can't all be fit into a couple of hours. Um, in this one, I want to talk about some more 90s acts. I like uh, I like every single um, musician that I'm listing here. I actually listened to all of these as a kid quite a bit. Talking about Marilyn Manson, Red Hot Chili Peppers... Uh, who else do we have here? System of a Down. Also, Rage Against the Machine uh, will be included. And you can't do any kind of episode like this without talking about Nirvana, right? I mean, like Kurt Cobain, all the shit that went on with him, the 27 Club, um, which you could just do a 27 Club episode with uh, with all the people there. And that might be something in the future. But, I mean, just an, in, an incredibly interesting set of circumstances with Kurt Cobain, some of the people that he grew up around even uh, have, you know, deep state ties, which is interesting. And I'll talk about Foo Fighters. I'll talk about that whole Seattle grunge scene because there is something truly interesting about Seattle. And I don't know if there's frequencies going on that make people go crazy or if it has something to do with Bill Gates and Amazon and Starbucks and all these massive, massive companies that come out of Seattle why is some of the like most amount of money in Seattle, but also like they have such a homeless problem too? You know, it's it's very interesting. But included in this Nirvana segment of this episode, I'll talk about this little band called Earth, and it's much more influential than you could imagine. Um, I I hadn't heard of these guys. Um, Dylan Carlson was a, a childhood friend of Cobain. And this is a very interesting guy. So I hope that you'll stick around for that part. I don't think that'll be in the Patreon portion yet. Uh, but it's tough to know. So we'll uh, we'll get into some fun stuff here. Um, I've got a lot of audio clips. Um, I shouldn't say a lot. I've got like one, maybe two for each artist here. Kind of just backing up what I'm saying here. And a lot of my information comes from this site that I really enjoy looking through. Some of my friends in this conspiracy space don't trust this site at all. But I, I, I mean, I think that it's interesting to find information here and then, you know, cross check and make sure that you're not just spitting out like CIA disinformation, which I, I, I'll guarantee you right now, this ISGP-studies.com seems to be connected to the CIA in some way. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times, like on uh, 
master debaters and probably talk at the tavern too. But right at the top of this website, it says uh, from a Harvard history professor, anonymous one, it says still reeling from how much excellent work you have managed to bring under one roof. Anytime you get a Harvard professor's quote, and who knows if that's even honestly a Harvard professor. Um, but once you go to this website, if you if you have the time to come check it out, it is like informational overload, which is a in a classic psychological operations tactic. The guy says chemtrails aren't real. He's got a list of like debunked conspiracies, says flat earth is bullshit. I'm not sold on any of those things. Uh, chemtrails, I'm a little more sold on than flat earth. But uh, I, I think it's tough when you're citing things like NASA and, and you know, very corrupt agencies. When that's your proof, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is your proof that the earth is round. Ah, uh, man, I, I, I can't. You lose me there. You lose me there. So, um, you know, th- obviously this isn't meant to be like a flat earth discussion of any kind. But, uh, man. It's hard to know what information is accurate, and that's why I, I cross-check all this stuff. Um, it was actually kind of one of the one of the things that we get into with Marilyn Manson. I had to do a lot of digging to double-check that this was accurate information, and it was. There's a lot of accurate information on this site. So ISGP.studies, an incredible source for tons of information. But as you should always do, double-check the information before you think it's gospel, okay? Now, if you want to support the show, guys, I appreciate it very much. Dangerous World Podcast is the new website. Now, for some reason, I'm having trouble with the link. So if you follow me on Instagram, I have a link tree there, and the proper link to the website is listed on the link tree. You won't have any problems uh, you know, scrolling through the site if you just type in Dangerous World Podcast, but if you did like something on there and you wanted to purchase it for yourself... That's when you'll start having issues with that normal link. So the easiest way, go to go to my Instagram, go to Linktree. Um, you'll get all that stuff there. Um, there's also the Patreon there, which I appreciate anyone supporting the show. And I'm going to come out with a promo code for my top level uh, Patreon people, the ones that throw down the $10. It's a good amount of money every month for sure. So what I'm going to do for you guys is set up a, a nice promo code. It's going to be at least 25%. And... Um, I'm going to change that every month just to avoid people like going in for a month and then having that promo code for the rest of their lives or whatever, rest of my life. Uh, So, yeah, we're going to do something fun and just looking to, um, you know, get discounts to those people that support the show. And I appreciate it very much. That's about it as far as housekeeping goes. Uh, Let's get into this stuff. Let's get into the music uh, that shaped my childhood, starting with Marilyn Manson. Um, uh, Not someone that I was particularly a huge fan of. But definitely an iconic, very iconic uh, act here with with the whole thing. I mean, the whole band uh, has interesting names, and I'll get into them too. Uh, But yeah, Marilyn Manson, you know, not my favorite out of the list. Probably if I had to pick one, it would be the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Or, um, I mean, Nirvana's kind of hard to go against. System of a Down. There's a lot. Out of this, Marilyn Manson would be my least favorite. But the connections to the CIA are incredibly interesting. Incredibly interesting stuff here. So um, Marilyn Manson grew up in Ohio as Brian Warner, later moving on to Florida uh, with his parents, obviously. And his dad was supposed to become a Jesuit priest before he was allegedly recruited by the CIA, who Manson says were, quote, interested in me at an early age because of my predisposition for psychopathic behavior, my IQ and my ability to decipher language. Incredibly interesting quote, and I've actually got a little clip. Uh, It's a mashup with him and Alex Jones. It's incredibly interesting uh, where he talks about this a little bit. Now, his father, Hugh Agnes Warner, um, he died in July of 2017. And when he was on his deathbed, apparently, according to Marilyn Manson, uh, he confessed his ties to the CIA and that he told him here that, you know, I tried to I spent my entire life trying to keep the CIA away from you. Uh, it's a it's a dirty organization, blah, blah, blah. Now, what's interesting about Manson and the CIA connection here and why he would bring them up, because I understand he could be just totally bullshitting. The dude's got a weird sense of humor, very dry, um, talks about nasty things in a very serious, matter-of-fact way, uh, things involving babies, things involving children, uh, lots of satanic shit. 
what's interesting about him bringing up the CIA is it is clear, 100% clear, that Manson is part of the satanic panic, right? Remember that whole thing where parents were extremely concerned with what their kids were listening to. And this this went on from for quite some time. I mean, at least from the, from the freaking 30s, uh, probably before that too. But the satanic panic to me is like 60s through the 2000s. A lot of people will tell you it's like the 90s. Um, but, you know, the whole thing with Elvis and the Beatles, like, you know, this is satanic music to the conservatives back in the day and all that stuff. This was truly satanic. And they ramped this stuff up. You'll see connections with Anton LaVey, Michael Aquino, and all that stuff. That satanic panic stuff is one of these CIA societal experiments. So it's undeniable that, that in at least in that way, whether he knew it or not, Marilyn Manson, that is, whether he knew it or not, he was part of the CIA's um, satanic panic push during that whole time to try and uh, get to the point where parents would allow their kids to check anything out that they wanted to. You know, when you when you when you're a parent and you tell your kid, "Hey, you can't listen to this music. It's it's evil, blah blah blah." This is going to make the kids want to do it more. So, it comes to a point where the parents are just like, "Okay." And and then, you know, the parents don't have the uh connection with their kids because the kid thinks that the parents are stupid because they think that Marilyn Manson is satanic even though it's just art and all this shit, right? Now, this mashup clip that I have of Alex Jones and uh, Marilyn Manson, a segment of an interview here, Alex Jones talks about exactly that, exactly that satanic panic push. And, and it ties in with the gangster rap stuff too, where this stuff wasn't just universally accepted by A, parents, and B, kids. I mean, kids didn't really care to listen to this shit. A lot of times when you're a kid... Uh, that can't buy these albums that that have the the parental advisory on them. Someone in the in the group has an older brother who thinks that this music's cool and they're able to buy it because they're 18 or older or whatever. And then the kids, you know, the younger kids get their hands on it, they listen to it, and then they just become obsessed with it because it's taboo, right? This artificially created a taboo when they're also subliminally teaching you and indoctrinating you with satanic propaganda. It's it sounds very conservative and like old head of me, but uh, this is absolutely accurate. And this is what Jones is talking about. And then you also get the segment of the interview here where Manson talks about the CIA connections. So listen to this clip. Uh, very interesting stuff. I was talking to a high level uh, record executive, high level, as high level as it gets, because I'd heard this before about Sumner Redstone and Viacom and MTV, and I was talking to this. Super high level, uh, one of the top three or four record executives in the country. A household name for anybody in the real music industry. And I said, you know, I heard that things in the mid-90s, that radical gangster rap wasn't even popular, and it was force-fed via MTV. And I also heard that things like uh, Marilyn Manson that wasn't popular, you know, was force-fed. And I said, is it true that, 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 that MTV ran that for years? And people rejected both gangster rap and that, but that it was a directive of Sumner Redstone to put that out. And he said, yes. And by the way, how do you even know about that? Well, by the way, too, I think that the uh, the producer, I think the producer that he was talking to would be Rick Rubin. That's just my hunch. He doesn't say that. Um, but yeah, Rick Rubin, uh, very similar to someone else that I'll get into connected with Manson. Or de- declassified CIA put out ugly art in starting in the 60s you, you know when you first thrust onto the scene in the, in the 90s your music was the soundtrack to millions of disassociated teens and and years and whatnot i heard that things in the mid 90s things like uh, marilyn manson that- i also know how to construct sentences in the way that they can't be taken out of context that's also probably why the CIA wanted to recruit me when I was a younger child. My father told me before he passed. The CIA wanted to recruit you? He, he said something along those lines. He said he tried to protect me from them because I think that he was um, somehow involved in Vietnam with uh, covert operations that I'm probably not even supposed to know about. So he never told me about it until he was you know, very ill at the end. So on the passing of these, he says he was... The CIA tried to recruit you, and I tried to keep you away from it. 
Yeah, for the most part, he said because of my ability to understand language and count the amount of things in a room before you, you know, you even get a chance to. It's, I guess it's some form of highly functioning autism. If I So, yeah, I mean, you get the idea. The clip goes on for another 30 seconds or so. He talks about how he can remember just about anything other than people's names. Again, this could be a troll. This could be some kind of joke. But I find it interesting that he's bringing up the CIA, clearly part of some sort of CIA program, and then his dad having ties to the CIA. And then, you know, before he was allegedly supposed to become a Jesuit priest. I mean, it's a it's a hell of a group of people there, the Jesuits and then the, the deep state, right? One and the same, but uh, incredibly interesting. So, you know, I mentioned Rick Rubin there. And, you know, Manson meets somebody that's, I think, in, I mean, in my opinion, equally as influential over music as Rick Rubin. And this is Trent Reznor. Now, Trent Reznor, for those that don't know, I mean, if you if you have heard of him, you probably know him from Nine Inch Nails. He also started a, um, it's like a subset uh, record label under Interscope called Nothing. And this is where Marilyn Manson and Trent Reznor really tie in together um, because Manson meets Reznor in 1989, this is the same year that the Marilyn Manson group officially begins, right? Now, Marilyn Manson is this individual, but it's also a group. There's other members in the in the band that all take their first name from models or, you know, women of some sort, you know, usually pretty women. And then their last names are serial killers. You have Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Monroe, Charles Manson, Daisy Berkowitz, Madonna Wayne Gacy, Twiggy Ramirez, who ends up uh, becoming, I guess, very close with him. And then you have this other guy that's kind of widely forgotten, Gidget Gein. Uh, this guy's real name is Brad Stewart, and he died of a heroin overdose and was replaced by Twiggy on Christmas Eve of 1993. Now, this is directly after a lot of the recording of Marilyn Manson's first album, um, the, the first, you know, formal album that they release and they release this under nothing and interscope with Trent Reznor. Okay. But what's interesting is where they recorded this album. Again, I mentioned that they meet in 1989 Manson's first album doesn't come out until 94. I believe I need to double check that really quick. So while I'm looking for this really quick, hold on one second. Yes. 94 portrait of an American family, iconic album, uh, for all the wrong reasons, really. I mean, uh, incredible, incredible songs on there, obviously, but just hell of an interesting coincidence because you also have Trent Reznor releasing their album. I think it, that one was Downward Spiral in 1994. So, so sometime after they meet, they both release their albums that were recorded in a house that Trent Reznor rented out. Now, this house just so happens to be the house where Marilyn Manson, the Marilyn Manson murders went down. Okay. So he rents this place out in 1992, Trent Reznor. It's kind of confusing when you look online, you can hear that he rented it in in 89. Uh, You can hear he did it in 94, all this stuff, but they, they rent out the, the Cielo drive home with the freaking Sharon Tate murders to record albums, okay? Now, uh, Trent Reznor gets accused of trying to capitalize off of a tragedy and all this shit. Um, obviously, he denies that, and, you know, it, it's a it's a lot of weird bullshit. I guess um, Tate's sister was the one that kind of convinced Reznor to move out and to quit doing this, but not before he takes the door, which uh, had Pig written on it. And this is where he gets the name for the studio. He calls it Le Pig because it was a French-style home. Um, and then Pig written on it, Lay, I guess, you know, being a little French reference there. But Le Pig uh, is the studio where not only Nine Inch Nails, uh, you know, one of their great albums uh, in 1994 was released, a Downward Spiral. And then Marilyn Manson's a Portrait of an American Family was also recorded here. The, the breakout first album for the group. So I don't think it's any coincidence that Marilyn Manson gets his name right after meeting Trent Reznor as he is an aspiring, uh, you know, musician. He's a music journalist when he meets Reznor. And then they go down this, uh, they, they start this friendship and they have a falling out. But I am willing to, to allege here that Reznor 
gave Manson that name. That's just my thoughts on this. And then, you know, recording in this house is is incredibly interesting. Imagine how many songs were potentially recorded in this house. That energy of the of this child sacrifice, right? Of this, you know, triple or quadruple homicide. I forget how many people were killed here. And then the CIA connections, not only with Marilyn Manson, but Susan Atkins, the one that wrote the name Pig on the door, she actually knew Anton LaVey as well. Anton LaVey, another CIA show that knows Marilyn Manson. And she used to participate in these LSD witch rituals with Anton LaVey. And it's incredibly interesting. You know, Marilyn Manson, going by obviously his real name, Brian Warner, meets a man who influences him a ton eventually signs him to Interscope Records and Nothing Records, and then Manson's first album being recorded in Le Pig Studios, along with Downward Spiral from Nine Inch Nails, were both released, both of these in 1994, so years after they actually record them, two years after the recordings. Man, I mean, what the hell is going on with that? There's got to be some sort of ritualistic component there for sure. Um, now, I mentioned the, the band members' names. They say themselves that the reason that they take a beautiful woman's first name and then a, an evil psychopath's last name is to represent duality. So it's another, it's a, it's a nice little Freemason, uh, somewhat satanic slash Luciferian reference there with a duality. And there's plenty more uh, kind of loose but very real CIA connections here as well. Um, Marilyn Manson has an autobiography that comes out in February of 1998. It's called The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. And this was written with the help of the Vassar Liberal Arts College, uh, Columbia University educated New York Times, Village Voice, and Rolling Stone magazine journalist named Neil Strauss. This dude is a hardcore CIA asset as well, okay? Um, not only because of the Columbia University connections, but the New York Times, the Rolling Stone. These are CIA mouthpiece magazines, okay? Now, um, in this book, which Neil Strauss uh, helps him write, kind of the ghostwriter, even though, you know, it's, I believe, on the cover that Neil Strauss helped with this book. He details in this book his meetings with Anton LaVey. And, and he talks about his, you know, ideology and his beliefs on Satanism. And Manson was, uh, at the time, when the, when the book comes out, he is the Church of Satan's like highest, most profound, influential member, uh, the Church of Satan, I'm, I'm saying here. It, it's incredibly interesting the way that he talks about Anton LaVey without knowing him as well as it seems, unless something is being missed, um, which I think that there is. I think that Manson actually knows uh, LaVey very well, but they, they make it seem like he only met a couple of times. Why would Marilyn Manson say he's like a father figure if they only met a couple times, right? Maybe he's trying to clout chase, uh, trying to get some street credit with like the, the you know younger Satanists out there and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people think that this dude was like the grand high wizard of the Satanic church or like the, the leading member. And he kind of was. Like Again, he's the most influential member of the Church of Satan at the time of this book's release. Uh, one of the most influential members to date, honestly. Uh, again, an iconic, iconic, iconic um, musician, really. Even as, as shitty as that is to say because of what he represents, incredibly iconic here. So supposedly he knew Michael Aquino as well. And um, I, this is because, I guess, you know, LaVey introduces him to Aquino. Michael Aquino, for those that may not remember, started a spinoff of the Church of Satan called the Temple of Set. Very esoteric Egyptian form of Satanism. It's it's weird as fuck. I'm not going to pretend I know everything about it. But Michael Aquino was also the army, I think he was like a colonel of the psychological operations department in the army. And he got accused, I think accurately, in my opinion. Now, we have to say alleged here, but he got accused of... Um, molesting kids and a kid was a, a child that, that said that he was molesting him was able to give intimate details of Aquino's house when Michael Aquino said he had never been inside. So, uh, you know, someone's lying there and I tend to think it's the high level military Satanist that is uh, rather than a child, because how the hell is a kid going to know that? But that's beside the point. 
um, the relationship here with Aquino and LeVay is very damning for the Marilyn Manson CIA connections, right? Now, uh, Lucian Greaves, who started the, the Satanic Temple, very inspired by Manson, talks about this all the time. I think that Lucian Greaves is another uh, CIA asset. He is a Harvard-educated neuroscientist who specializes in child abuse-linked false memory syndrome. Let that sink in for a second. A, a Harvard-educated neuroscientist who specializes in child abuse-linked false memory syndrome. CIA asset and a half. His real name is Douglas Mesner, okay? But you'll, you'll probably know him as Lucian Greaves. He's that creepy little one-eyed weird guy, uh, big-time Satanist. Uh, strange, strange dude. He, the Satanic Temple was the organization that when abortion was saying to be, you know, outlawed, when it, it really it just goes to the states like it should anyway, um, they were the ones saying that, you know, abortion is a satanic sacrifice. It's part of our ritual, so you can't, you can't infringe on our rituals. Supposedly a troll, but man, it's a shitty way to, to joke again. Now, um, one thing that I'll leave off on here too is um, some some of the people that he dated, Jenna Jameson, um, what the hell's the girl's name, Rose McGowan, um, they both talked about how weird this dude was. Incredibly, incredibly weird. Uh, Jenna Jameson talks about the time that she met him and she she threw something in there that was kind of interesting, talking about how they also met Anna Nicole Smith, who looked like a drag queen that night. Like, she didn't even look like the real Anna Nicole Smith. Looked like someone impersonating her. Um, and I guess he was just completely obsessed with, like, her that was at this party, Anna Nicole Smith, throwing little random things at her, like uh, popcorn and shit, hitting her in the back of the head. And then also Corey Feldman, who Jenna Jameson adamantly was saying that Manson was just obsessed with Corey Feldman. Again, Corey Feldman being uh, a, a very, very loud voice in the child pedophile rings of Hollywood. So why was this dude so obsessed throwing popcorn at not only Anna Nicole Smith, but Corey Feldman, and he just would not leave Corey Feldman alone all night. They were sitting behind him, and he was just fucking with him all night at this movie premiere that they were watching together. Just an interesting little thing. Um and, and then the last thing that I'll point out here is that he's supposedly, by many accounts, fascinated with Nazis to the point where he's got, like, tons of Nazi decor all over his house. Um, Nazis, I would say, maybe a little tied to the CIA as well. I know some people don't want to hear that, but uh, it's kind of proven with the rat lines and, uh, you know, paperclip and all these things. So, interesting stuff. To, to summarize it all, I know it was kind of all over the place. Dude has a freaking father who was a, uh, you know, supposed to become a Jesuit priest. Very, very powerful hidden hand organization. And then ends up going to the CIA. Uh, has an obsession with Corey Feldman, who was a, 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 you know, pedophile whistleblower in Hollywood. Connections with, uh, you know, Trent Reznor, Anton LaVey, uh, Michael Aquino. There's, I mean, we're starting to kind of rack up some points for CIA puppet here for Mr. Manson. So incredibly interesting. That one, the Jesuit stuff blew my mind. I thought that was incredibly just fascinating shit. So let's move on to the Red Hot Chili Peppers now because I'm actually about to go see these guys in May and I couldn't be more excited. I love the music, but the type of CIA connection here rather than satanic panic seems to be more of a grooming situation and I think that not only is Anthony Kiedis the lead singer excuse me a product of grooming uh from older women very attractive women Cher being one of them um a, a product of that kind of pedophilia but also a proponent also seeming to carry on that legacy of you know taking younger less powerful people and using sex to manipulate them and to create this this continuous cycle of abuse. Um, tragic stuff, very interesting. And then his father also has some pretty wild connections here as well. So let's get into Anthony Kiedis, Flea, and then the, all the Red Hot Chili Peppers here. You know, the, the whole share story and where I think a lot of this strange grooming stuff starts. Um, Kiedis actually talks about in his book, uh, Scar Tissue is his autobiography, now, um, his godfather was Sonny Bono, 
And there's an interesting story how he kind of drifts away from Sonny, who was more straight-laced, um, you know, interesting story because he goes over and, and starts hanging out with his father more, and his father's much more of a kind of a rebel, I guess, right? Trafficking drugs and whatnot. And um, again, this is in his book, so I'm not, I don't think, you know, getting out there talking about shit that people uh, like him wouldn't want her, which I don't really care anyway, but um, I should point out that um, Bono was a Scientologist because Cher actually kind of guided him in that direction. It's interesting. Now, they were so close, I guess, that not only is Cher babysitting him when Sonny's going out, um, you know, on dates and stuff, which is weird in itself, right? Like, they're together, apparently an open relationship sort of situation. But they're so close that that kind of stuff's going on. He's using Sonny's address in his Bel Air home so that he can have access to this Emerson Middle School where... Um, Ketis's father wanted him to go. I don't know if there's some sort of connection there with Hollywood or what. I know it's a it's a pretty famous middle school as far as middle schools go. Um, but you see a lot of this this grooming stuff with these people in Hollywood. You see, I'm sure that you've seen the video of Demi Moore, uh, like basically making out with a kid that couldn't be more than 12 years old. You know, this is back in the 80s or 90s, very grainy film, but it's clear what's going on. Um, they're trying to influence these people. When you have a beautiful woman like Demi Moore or like uh, Cher, you know, telling you to do certain things and then, you know, messing around with you sexually, you're definitely going to be under their power as a young boy, right? Uh, freaky, creepy shit. But um, this this clip is really interesting. Now, listen, this is from an old Conan interview where... Ketis discusses the whole share situation just kind of briefly, but it's very strange how Conan reacts and it's strange how the crowd reacts. And it's also kind of interesting to watch uh, Anthony Ketis's reaction to the way that everyone's acting. He seems kind of out of his element, definitely, uh, you know, shy compared to what he is on stage. So check this interview out. This is, I'm not sure of the date it looks like, early 2000s I, I should know when scar tissue came out but i just don't um so here it is you talk in the book about growing up and having these amazing experiences that that other people don't have when they're growing up one of which is that you knew share when you were growing up i, I think through your through your dad father's ex-girlfriend went out with sunny bono hang out meet share she becomes my friend so share is your friend when you're a boy 13 14 13 yeah. 14 and share babysits for you one night she did one night yeah tell me about that um yeah i guess because i wrote it in my book i have to be willing to discuss that it's in a book now it's so i think now. yeah, yeah. Like, um, well, i'm not talking about that that remains secret forever oh no, here it is no. uh yeah i got a permission okay you got shares permission i did Good. i did um i was 13 or 14 and sunny and my father's girlfriend connie went out for the night Cher was staying home they asked her if she would watch me for the night she's like yeah he can stay in my bed and you guys get home three in the morning come pick him up and take him away so i was laying there in her bed i was like this is very wonderful because i like this woman and she's beautiful and she's older and i'm young and i'm just starting to you know have these feelings and she goes into the bathroom to change and the door kind of goes open and, and i'm going okay i can see her now she's undressing and she undressed and i was just there being very uh, elated by the experience and and she put on her nighty and she came to bed and you know we had a little chat and we both uh, and you're uh, you're a 13 14 year yeah, old boy yeah. in bed with a pretty much naked share well she put on a nighty or something it doesn't matter no. that's the best <laughs> difference yeah it's like not suddenly a bad story because she's got a nighty no, on no. that's incredible but you uh and then uh, you know i dreamed about things like that when i was yeah exactly that's pretty amazing it makes all for a good book. You also talk about, this is something that I, I think some of your fans wouldn't expect, but I guess maybe it makes sense. When you were young, you used to do shows in your basement, and you would do Partridge Family shows. Yeah. So interesting, right? I mean, uh, clearly uh, some pedophilia going on there, but it's so much different, especially, you know, when this book came out, it was 2004, so I was right, early 2000s. Um, this would obviously be right around then. This is right before the era of Me Too and all that kind of shit, right? So interesting stuff. It's much different, unfortunately, when it's a older woman doing this to a young boy, right? 13 or 14, he said. So 
Yeah, it's acceptable, unfortunately, at this time. And, and it's not really made to look like anything weird. But this perpetuates a cycle to an extent. Now, you have uh, Anthony Kiedis's father, which is John Michael Kiedis, a.k.a. Blackie Dammit, which was, uh, you know, his stage name, I guess. He's basically like a B or C actor. Uh, never really made it too big. And, um, I mean, he must have known enough about how Hollywood worked to sort of ensure that his son would go as far as one possibly could in its system. I mean, right off the bat, it seems to me like Anthony, um, which is John Michael's firstborn son, he Anthony Kiedis does have a younger brother born in 91. Um, seems like the firstborn son was the chosen one in the family to go on and accomplish what the father couldn't, right? Um, now, where this theory kind of falls apart is when Kiedis and Sonny kind of drift away. Uh, Anthony Kiedis and Sonny Bono drift away. Um, could be part of a part of a scheme or whatever, but, you know, he, he says in his own words that Sonny Bono was on the straight and narrow path. Um, this guy, again, a Scientologist. If you didn't know, too, he was the mayor of, I think, Palm Springs and then uh, goes on to be a representative in California's 44th district before having a freaking skiing accident and dying like a Kennedy. Um, that's always something to be suspicious of when you have an actor that becomes a politician. Uh, those worlds are definitely one of the same, but uh, it's interesting when someone pursues things outside of Hollywood that only get them more power and more recognition, right? So anytime you see that, Reagan, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, things like that, there's there's tons. I think Jesse Ventura kind of too. Um, so yeah, but anyway, Kiedis drifts away from Sonny Bono and he goes back to his father uh, who does drugs, uh, supposedly committing petty crimes and things like this. Kind of a shitbag, it sounds like. Two birds of a feather, his son and his father here. And when he moves back in, they actually began smuggling massive amounts of weed in airports, like several suitcases. Uh, he, he describes them as big Samsonite cases. They would just fill up with weed and send them right through the airport. Now, I know that airport security at this time in the uh, you know late 80s, early 90s, I'm assuming, it's much different right? We have much tighter security at airports after 9-11, but does that sound like something that you can really do if you aren't connected? I know that there's stories, you've seen this in like movies like Blow, where they would just like simply move shit through the airport. This doesn't work like that. Life's not a freaking movie like this. To me, it sounds like some sort of asset would have the clearance to be able to do this and know how to do it, right? Um, and, and bringing a kid along with you, not only is he part of the crime, it's kind of like setting up this fake situation where it's like just a father and son going on a trip. It, it removes a lot of suspicion. It's something that I think is, is it, at the very least, it's very intuitive to, to do this. But uh, I think, again, he was kind of coached into you know being able to move this. And he's also moving cocaine. Anthony Kiedis' father is, okay? Now, who he's moving cocaine to is incredibly interesting because he starts doing this in the 80s. Um, I believe 84 was when they were talking about because he said that they were visited by Oakland Raiders or maybe they were Los Angeles Raiders at the time the day before the Super Bowl. And they would come and pick up drugs from his father. And 84 was, the, as far as I know, the only year that they were in the Super Bowl uh, around that time especially. So interesting, just the, the connections with... You know, obviously moving marijuana, the connections with moving cocaine, who he's selling to very famous people in the case of the cocaine, as it's becoming more and more popular in the 80s. Stars love these people. Star, stars love the Drug Connect, right? And if the Drug Connect has a kid that he just so happens to want to be famous, well, uh, this is kind of how this goes, right? Uh, I gave you all kinds of cocaine, for years and years now help ensure that my son, uh, you know, is a star. It's, it's interesting. Now, this is where Flea comes in after, uh, you know, Kiedis is a, is a kid moving drugs with his dad. Flea enters the picture, and you always have to wonder why people in high positions push an unrelated ideology. Flea is a very um activist driven musician similar to like a Tom Morello type or a uh, Serge Tankian from System of a Down who I'll get into as well um why if you're making great music are you going to ram 
something like, uh, you know, third wave feminism down people's throats. Most people don't enjoy this at all. They don't like being preached to by musicians and people that they know that they don't have anything in common with deep down. Um, but I think that this is part of an agenda. You get some people with some natural talent. You tell them what to say and you say, hey, you promote this ideology um, and we'll ensure that your records get sold. Right. This is kind of what flea comes in. And so it's not as in my from my research it's not as directly connected to the CIA as it seems Anthony Kiedis's dad is um, as far as like a drug runner. Right now, when you start talking about activism, all these guys are all pushing similar shit. They're all pushing Antifa ideology and things like that. And not only does it start with, you know, feminism and uh, anti-racism, which I'm on board with. I'm on board with feminism, too. Just not this third wave shit where men are stronger than women and uh, men can fight. Uh, or I'm sorry, women are <laughs> Freudian slip there. Uh, women are stronger than men. Women can fight men in MMA events. Everything's 100% equal and the same. Pay should be the same. I don't doubt that. Uh, you know, we don't want to get into that rabbit hole. But once you start pushing these things that are reasonable, experimental vaccines come out and these bands start pushing those too. And their loyal fans uh, who agree with their takes on, on anti-racism and feminism and things will blindly line up for experimental vaccines because these Pfizer companies and Moderna and all this shit are owned by the same people that own these record labels and they're connected. Um, I actually was going through side note was going through uh, the whole scandal that was going on with the UFC where Dana White slapped his wife on New Year's Eve. This company called Endeavor that owns the UFC. Okay. That's a pop culture brand, right? His brother is Ram Emanuel. This guy's name is Ari Emanuel, okay? So you have Ari Emanuel owning a pop culture, uh, massively influential company like the UFC. You have Rahm Emanuel, who's a politician that influenced Barack Obama. These two are brothers. And their third brother, who I can't remember, maybe Ezekiel is his name, he's on the fucking COVID-19 board. So you've got, you know, politicians being influenced. You've got medicine being influenced and you've got pop culture being influenced by the way of the UFC, all from one family. These people all break bread together, literally, and sometimes are born out of the same person. I mean, so these people are oftentimes freaking related in these situations. So it's no coincidence that like my brother owns a record label. I am a uh, CEO of Moderna. Do me a little favor here and, and have your bands push my product. Right. And it all goes back to deep state connections. That's it's literally what this is here. Now, back to, uh, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers here and, and their pushing of certain propaganda and things. One that was very specific with them is the allowance of third world migration and immigration into nations like the U.S., Germany, the U.K. Um, and at this point, they're, they're either clueless as to what kind of negatives immigration brings. It's, it's human trafficking, essentially. I know a lot about the, not a lot, but more than the average person about immigration from Mexico and how they use coyotes, which, you know, rape the, the men, the women and the children that are coming over here. They do whatever the hell they want with them. They'll send drugs over with them and they'll take advantage of these people because they're going to a country where they, I mean, the, the coyote has the upper hand here. The, the coyote smuggling the person has the upper hand because the, the other one doesn't even have the time know freaking English. They don't know the language of the, the officials. They don't know where anything is, right? And they get taken advantage of. So either Red Hot Chili Peppers is clueless to this or they endorse human trafficking. I don't know which it is, but um, with the, the human trafficking comes the, the grooming and all these things that it seems like Ketis was a part of from an early age and then goes on to perpetuate later. Um, I think that I think that they're just kind of okay with human trafficking, to be honest. Now, this is me kind of just alleging. I, I haven't obviously spoken with them on this, but it, it seems like you have to know what's going on. Now, in his 2004 biography, again, Scar Tissue, um, he also con confesses about this time uh, that he had been... Well, let me say this. He, he continuously incriminates himself in pedophilia himself as an adult as an as a you know 20 something year old man um 
to me, it's incredibly interesting that you can say these things in a book. These are crimes. He talks about, quote, freaky underage sex. Um, he talks about how his father and at least two girls of very much underage, uh, you know, age would be having sex. It's, it's weird, right? Seeing your dad do this, um, thinking that it's okay. And, and just, you know, again, perpetuating the cycle. It's, it's incredibly interesting. He talks about this one example where he was 24 and he had a 16-year-old girlfriend named Eon Skye who was introduced to him by Flea. So Flea is helping perpetuate the pedophilia here too. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly interesting. I guess Eon Skye was, uh, was an actress and he saw a movie that she was in, said that Anthony Kiedis would love her. They meet up. Um, that's not okay. A 24 year old man and a 16 year old girl, but it, it, again, it's Hollywood. This is pushed and this is totally allowed. I think for blackmail of some sort. Um, but he's here admitting to it. So it's kind of interesting that that's just out there and accepted. And people say, well, he's such a talented musician. We'll let this slide. I've heard from, from the guitar player. I can't remember his name for the life of me. Anthony Kiedis has like no musical knowledge. He's just like naturally a gifted singer. And that's what makes his music so appealing is it's such a unique style. He picks, he sings very off note, but it works. It works really well for that band. I actually love this band. And again, I'm excited to see them in May. Uh, so hopefully this doesn't get in the wrong ears and they, uh, it'd be funny. They call me on stage and talk shit, but, uh, you know, it, 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 there's another story here where he dated a 14 year old briefly. And he tells a story where they were in Baton, Baton Rouge for a concert and she tells him, after they've already had sex, that she's only 14 and her father is the police chief of Louisiana. And this chief declares her missing. So they have sex one more time. Uh, again, a 20-something-year-old and a 14-year-old. And then he takes her, takes her home. Wild to talk about this in a book. How can you get away with that stuff if you aren't connected, right? Um, so, yeah, th that that's... Most of what I have on uh, the the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers connections and just, again, very different from Manson, right? Satanic panic, uh, you know, societal experiments with Manson, uh, alleged Jesuit connections, alleged CIA connections, according to the horse's mouth there in that case. And then here you have a drug trafficking, pedophile pushing situation, right? And then also a ton of activism, so... A little more loose stuff with him, with uh, with Kiedis specifically, and then also Flea, you know, kind of backing him in this whole thing, um, feeding him young girls and stuff like that. Because remember, Flea's gay, so supposedly. I mean, it's kind of interesting. But um, along with much of Hollywood here too, it seems like Kiedis is part of this so-called called, uh, nonpartisan but liberal CIA-backed Declare Yourself Project. Now, that's an interesting one if you look into Declare Yourself Project. Um, this was founded by Norman Lear with the help of the former Democrat president, Jimmy Carter, and the Republican president, Gerald Ford, both very, very close Rockefeller allies. And Lear was a key founder in 1981 and chair uh, of the People for the American Way, which is a you know supposed new left organization. It's a non-governmental organization. Funded by the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, George Soros's Open Society Foundations, and other elite foundations all fund this um, interesting little little declare yourself project. So when they say that something's nonpartisan, but you have people like the Rockefellers, uh, the Soroses, all these people funding this, and the Ford Foundation, of course, you have to ask yourself how nonpartisan is this? Maybe it's nonpartisan in the fact that. Um, it's the elite, it's the right elite, it's the left elite coming together to fuck the everyday average person. And I think that that could in fact be a nonpartisan thing for them, but it's bad for us. So interesting stuff with them, right? Very different examples of how, um, at least I feel they are connected to the CIA. Now uh, we'll get into the system of a down, uh, stuff here. It's similar to the red hot chili peppers. They're actually, uh, Antifa groups, both of these guys. And then after that, we'll get into Nirvana and all the Seattle grunge scene stuff, including that band earth that I mentioned 
And uh, then we'll wrap up with Rage Against the Machine. That'll definitely be in the Patreon portion. The Rage stuff will. But we'll get uh, through a lot of the Nirvana stuff before we move into Rage. But yeah, you'll see just the different ways that these all connect into the CIA, I think. So System of a Down. Another band that I totally idolized as a, a younger adult. Um, Surge Tankian. I think all of them are Armenian, but... They really shouldn't be known as a band. They're much more activists. Again, similar to Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I think uh, pumped up a little bit. Um, and I don't see much, as much as like the pedophilia references. They're definitely present. Um, there's a couple songs from them that that are the, just the title alone uh, kind of seems to, I don't know if honor is the right word, but it, it seems to lean towards pedophilia with some of these. And then, it, you know, their last two albums are Mesmerize and Hypnotize, too. And if you just look at the covers there, there's definitely a strange uh, vibe to them. It's got broken clocks. It's got the uh, pendulums on there. Um, one of them also is, uh, I think, Toxicity. It's just the Hollywood sign where it says System of a Down, right? So lots of references there just on the albums alone, but um, they should be known more as activists rather than than a band. Similar to a lot of these, you know, supposed politicians that I don't think that's their, their proper title. A lot of these people are activists like AOC. She's an activist. A lot of media personalities. They're not journalists. They're activists. They're promoting their cause and they're hiding behind the authority of... A journalist and, and uh, you know, CNN or Fox even. I'm not singling CNN out. They're all pushing an agenda. They're all activists. Now, this is what System of a Down is. And they're, they have some high roller liberal friends. Um, now, I have a little clip here where, I mean, this is it's totally uh, pretentious of Surge Tankian. It's a clip of Surge Tankian, the real talent behind the band. Um, and the most annoying activist out of the bunch here, you have Darren uh, Malakian that is seriously talented, too. Uh, he's the dude from Scars on Broadway now, if they're still around. Um, very talented dude, but most of his kind of um, creepy, weird stuff is more shock value. He talks about like Marilyn or not Marilyn Manson, Charles Manson being like a big influence on him and all this shit. Uh that stuff is creepy, and it's definitely something to raise concern for, like, you know, anyone that's not trying to be indoctrinated in some way. But I think that the real threat of, like, a globalist system potentially comes from Serge Tankian here. I mean, he's he's definitely pushing some weird stuff. But here is a clip of an interview. And in this interview, he says exactly what I'm saying here. He's not concerned with the music. He's, he's more concerned about the life of an activist. And he plainly says here, too, that when you don't have a voice before you're famous, like it's almost like the entire reason that he wanted to be famous was to have influence. It wasn't for the typical things you'd think, the drugs, the girls, the money. It seems that it's just to have influence. Um, that's suspicious to me, too. So here is a clip. It's uh, only a couple minutes, but you'll hear him say exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, he wants to be known as an activist, not a musician. When when um, originally the idea of making a film was very much a POV film from the artist's perspective kind of thing. But there was, you know, there wasn't the right depth to it. There was just a lot, a lot of interesting experiences, which, which I have tons and tons of footage of still. And I'll just be kind of releasing small fun bits over, over the years. But, you know, when Garin Hovanesian and I, who's the director and a good friend of mine got together to talk about it, we, you know, we, we were trying to figure out what, what's the real story here? What are, what are we trying to say? And I was less interested in the artist, the biography, the behind the scenes, the rock star. And, and I was more interested in the life of an activist through the arts. Um, and at a point where the activist has very little voice before the arts, before he's an artist, and then the band, you know, explodes and that voice increases the, the dissemination of the messages becomes more pronounced and and as time goes by there's even occasions where you can see some of the activism have uh, potency in terms of action and and things changing 
and also the repercussions of that activism. Um, so that to me was the interesting drama part of the story. And along the way, you're seeing a lot of system of a down stuff, performance stuff, behind the stage footage. So it's also appealing in, in a musical sense, obviously. Um, so yeah, there you have it. He, he likes that he can have influence with his voice to the point where people actually act on them. They act on his words. Um, again, incredibly suspicious, I think, when you have high, highly influential people here um, screaming about certain messages, which obviously we're all on board, most of us are on board with anti-racism stuff, but you're never going to 100% get rid of it. Um, people are free to be dumb racist if they so choose. And I think that those racist people reap the benefits and the negatives of having their own little groups like this, right? There's tight groups of all white people. Um, but then they, they miss out on opportunities because, and friendships and good relationships and things like that, uh, because they're so obsessed with certain aspects. But uh, leave that freedom for people to to make those mistakes. It's crazy. When you, when you start trying to push ideologies, you become what you're trying to, or what you're saying that you're fighting. You become fascist. And uh, Serge Tankian, the guy that you just heard speaking there, again, the lead singer, uh, the real talent behind System of a Down, in my opinion, he's the co-founder of the Antifa group called Axis of Justice. Now, think about what that name is there alone, right? Uh, Axis, like the World War II freaking allies or like the, you know the opposite side of the allies in world war ii the axis powers the fascists but the axis of justice was allied with an older antifa group here called anti-racist action and um it's just one of these fake cia fed grassroots organizations now it, to me it's just interesting the the name axis of justice i actually thought that this was a band um I thought it was a band that was co-founded by by you know Tom Morello, who's involved, Maynard and Adam from Tool, and then Systems uh, Surge. But it's like a it's an NGO actually, and fucking Michael Moore's involved with this Axis of Justice too. A real quick internet search of what Axis of Justice is: it's a nonprofit organization co-founded by Surge Tanking and Tom Morello. They leave out the Tool guys for some reason. Tool really kind of is. Uh, they're insidious with the way that they do this stuff. They they do a lot of incredibly progressive things uh, to a negative extent that are uh, that just kind of get ignored because there's bigger groups like System and Rage and and Audio Slave and stuff that that are also involved. But continuing with the short uh, description here of Axis of Justice, its purpose is to bring together musicians, fans of music, and grassroots progressivism to fight for social justice together. Okay, these are social justice warrior activists. They are not musicians. They happen to know how to play instruments and sing and hit the proper notes, but they're activists here. And I believe that they are connected in heavily to the CIA and to globalism and things like this. Now, with Michael Moore, uh, that connection there, he, again, part of Axis of Justice, he actually directed one of their music videos. I believe it was Boom. And this is Serge Tankian talking about this and just a little suspicious here, right? He says, before the Iraq war, we did a video with Michael Moore about boom. And that actually landed on MTV the day the war was started. That's not a coincidence, okay? And it was based on the 10 million people protesting before the war. So you have something landing on the freaking day that this that this war actually starts. You're protesting war. Uh, a, that doesn't just happen by coincidence. It's similar to the uh, Slayer album, God Hates Us All, that was released on September 11th, 2001. And the lyrics in that album are about terrorism and shit. I think that there's actually lines in some of the songs talking about planes flying into buildings. That is not a coincidence. These things aren't coincidences when you're talking about something and it just so happens to, to drop on a day where what you're talking about happens. There's a lot of planning that goes into music video releases and album releases. Again, not a coincidence here. So I find that suspicious. And then it's just interesting to see how they influence their audiences, right? In his own words, what the system seems to do is it finds somebody with natural skills, 
uh, either you know to a high extent or just minorly uh, talented, or they have connections to Hollywood like Kiedis's father seemed to. Um, they find these people, they have them sell their souls, literally, right? Uh, they get fed an audience to influence. They preach the handler's message. And then, uh, you know, then their, their albums flop because they, they scare off their grassroots fans, the people that liked them before they were huge. As they grow, they get more people that they can push these messages to. And then around election times, these people are just so incredibly annoying. And they're always pushing for the liberal side of the politics, right? They're not ever really pushing for uh, conservatives very often at all. Unless you have your people like Kid Rock out there. You have other certain people that I think help feed the division. But uh, yeah, it, it, again, activism here. Not not. I mean, music is just a side tool uh to introduce people to what the true message is which is what the label tells these people to say um often to to our detriment the the middle class people's detriment remember these people are all rich right they're talking about paying more taxes they're talking about doing your part and blah 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 they could do that shit themselves right but they choose to try and trick you their fans into doing what they say it's a it's a tactic right and this happens in all forms of entertainment, including podcasts. I've actually mentioned many times, right? Like with Rogan and Jones, um, you're starting to see even, you know, some smaller level podcasters, ones that are bigger than me, but you're starting to see people uh, in the conspiracy space censor people, um, you know, and not, not include their name or their information in their episodes because what they're saying goes against what they are, I, I believe, directed to push. Um, but they don't want to get that reputation that that they're censoring and that maybe that they're playing into a larger agenda. Um, again, you should always be cautious of anyone that you're listening to. Um, even if it doesn't seem like they're pushing something, usually people are. I Even me, I try to do, I, I put out good content to try to make money, right? Like this is a, it's an honest thing. I wouldn't do this if I wasn't getting something out of it. There's a lot of time that goes into these things. Um, I try to sell merch, right? There's reasons why I do it, but there's other reasons that are a lot more nefarious, I think, that some other people do because they're getting you know, told to push a certain agenda. No one's telling me to push any agenda, but I am pushing my own agenda, which is just trying to make a living here, right? Uh, that's, I think, what everyone does, even if it's a day-to-day -day life thing. If you're a janitor... At, at some school, which, you know, nothing against a janitor at a school, but you're doing that to make money. So not to get on my, uh, you know, soapbox there, but it, it's interesting uh, when you see a direct influence over some of these artists and some of these, you know, works that are out there. Now, um, back to system here. In mid-2010, Serge Tankian, the guy you just heard talk, was a part of the Antifa the sound strike group, and this is a failed protest against Arizona's SB uh, 1070 bill that was meant to curb illegal immigration into the state, mainly from Mexico and other Central American countries here, but immigration in general. And they actually came out with a song in September of 2012 that uh, it was called We Are the 99%. And listen to, to the lineup here in this song. We got Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, Tim McIlrath, who I believe is from Rise Against, if I'm not mistaken, um, and then uh, Serge Tankian, and then they they have Occupy Wall Street as a featured thing too. I don't know how you do that, but uh, yeah, NGO shit right here. This is this is nonprofit money laundering, uh, social justice warrior bullshit, and Serge Tankian for a little more money laundering here, in my opinion. Uh, he was also very present during the honoring of Chris Cornell. We all remember that very, very weird, uh, strangely timed uh, suicide thing. Supposedly him and the lead singer of Linkin Park were working on a human trafficking movie to try and shine some light on that. Now, Tankian being very present during the honoring of Chris Cornell at the Human Rights Watch Gala which received millions and millions in donations from liberal money laundering schemes and, and virtue signalers. 
And you can guess where Surge uh, sits regarding Trump and the whole thing too, right? I mean, if, if you're pushing all this shit and you're talking about immigration and you're talking about, uh, you know, anti-racism and things like this to, to an annoying extent, again, he hates, he hates Trump. And there's actually one of the band members, I forget his name, that, that really uh, was in support of Trump. But just uh, interesting to see um, sometimes there's people that don't go along with these messages. And I think that that's what the uh, band member of System that, that just didn't go with everything that they said. I think that he just kind of had his own mind and he, he didn't necessarily care about selling out and doing all this stuff. Uh, his name, actually, I have it right here, John um, Dolmayan. He was the drummer uh, of System, and he was very anti-BLM, a big Trump supporter. Not that, you know, those those causes are necessarily uh, admirable or whatever, but these groups are created to create division, and that's what they do. The, even in bands like this, where these guys make so much money together, they can't just put politics aside this was always their focus as a band was getting a voice that they can influence politics. That to me just screams CIA. So uh, again, uh, another band that I loved that just uh, once you start seeing more and more about these guys, it just it, it just turns to shit. Um, but yeah, let's get into Nirvana now. This is the big one. This is a very interesting one to me. Uh, the whole Seattle grunge scene, including this band called Earth, which the the founder of that band, the front guy, uh, even though it's an instrumentals thing, they um, they created this grunge sound. They took like hardcore, like Slayer riffs or Metallica riffs, and they slowed them down. They kept the distortion up, but they slowed them down, and it's a very kind of witchy sound. Um, go back and listen to Nirvana songs. Or um, who else is from there? I think Soundgarden might be from Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. Listen to these grunge grunge music acts and think about them as being ritualistic. Um, there's the uh, the biggest song from Nirvana too. Uh, Smells like Teen Spirit. The guitar riffs in there when it's not super fast and catchy. The guitar riffs as he's singing are very hypnotizing. Uh, so yeah, check these out. Not so much system, but more the grunge. The grunge sounds are very, very hypnotizing. But yeah, let's get more into this situation here. And I actually have um, a chart, which I'll share, uh, that talks about the weird little system that created the grunge sound. It's, it's incredible stuff. I'm trying to find it here really quickly. Okay, so... This table, this chart, is uh, the origin of grunge or the Seattle sound. Two key university-backed alternative radio stations spawned Sub Pop, which was a record label, and various grunge bands. Now, Sub Pop uh, is the one that Nirvana was signed to in the beginning. Uh, Green River, Mother Love Bone, Mud Honey, Pearl Jam, uh, Bikini Kill, which is a feminist activist band, same, same as Nirvana. But it starts off saying the founding... Uh, trilateral Commission President, Major Corporate Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, etc., and liberal CIA funding, um, you know, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller, and all that. Uh, this goes into Evergreen State College. All right, guys, you know what to do. If you haven't already done it, sign up for the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dangerous World Podcast. This episode continues there. And you get over 120 at this point. Uh, all full versions for only $3. There are other tiers available if you so choose, but your support is appreciated. The last portion of this episode, I get into Nirvana, as stated there. And then, remember, no Rage Against the Machine covered in this one. That will be the next episode. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your support.